of God. It touches my soul. We're going to find ourselves today in John 14. I'm glad you're all here, by the way. I am Pastor Todd, if I haven't met some of you. Glad you're here. We're going to look at John 14, verses 12 to 31. We started this series called Summer Gospel Nuggets, and we're just jumping around through the four Gospels, uh, just what we believe the Lord wants us to speak. If you remember, the two lessons we've looked at already was from Matthew chapter 8. The first one was called The Calm and the Storm, and last week we looked at the perspective of forgiveness from Luke chapter 7. And today we're going to look at what we're calling Jesus in us from John chapter 14, verses 12 to 31. We'll get to the text here in a minute. I typically ask you a question. I want to ask you a question now. Did you ever start to value something you once thought to be insignificant? We all have, right? It takes time to learn things that are valuable. I'm going to give you a few examples. Some are very silly. Some are sort of deep. I'll start with the silly. Uh, when I was younger, I discovered something called cheese. I thought cheese, when I discovered it, was the best thing that had ever been invented. I wanted cheese on everything, didn't I, Mom? Everything had to have cheese. Everything. Even things that don't, shouldn't have cheese on them. I wanted cheese on top of them because I thought cheese was amazing. I still do. But back in the day, I wanted it more than my next breath. In fact, I probably wanted it on my next breath if I could figure it out a <laughs> way. I loved cheese. Everything had to have cheese. For some reason, I just thought cheese was amazing, and um, I had a love affair with cheese ever since. But uh, coffee was another thing that I had to realize. Now, let's, I'm going to ask you a question here. Who started drinking coffee later in their life? I want to see who the latest is, because I started drinking coffee in my mid-20s. Who could beat me? What, what, what age? Okay, no, I'm, I'm asking who, the other way. Like, who started later in their life? Liz, what age? Seven question mark. We can't, we can't. Okay. <laughs> okay, so she was an adult. <laughs> okay, well, we'll figure that out. But I started drinking coffee when I worked at a bank. I went through college. I didn't drink coffee. I thought coffee was nasty. I, didn't, I couldn't believe people drank coffee. It was horrible. It was bitter, right? Um, I started working at a bank in my mid-20s, and it was one of those jobs that you do the same thing every single day, every single week. In the morning, you're typically fine, but you get to that meaty part of the afternoon, like 2 o'clock, and I was falling asleep. I mean, it was just mindless, monotonous work. And so I actually started to drink coffee to save my job because it was that bad. So I actually said, I'm just going to throw down the coffee, and regardless of how bad it tastes, but something happened when he started drink, to drink coffee. Actually, once I started to actually drink real coffee instead of that heavily sedated and creamed version, I started to drink real coffee and started to realize, well, it's pretty good. I like coffee. And uh, I started to grow that love for coffee. And now I'm a coffee nut. I'm a coffee fan. And, and I don't really drink it because of the caffeine, because I can't have caffeine. I just love it because it's good. It tastes good. I like the warmth of it. I like what it represents. I like the fact that it's, it's always my friend. It's always there when I need it. I love you, coffee. I love you. Here's another one I didn't value when I was growing up. It was naps. And my children now are in that, in that sphere of life. Naps is like the big party killer, right? Naps come to steal your fun. And so back in the day, I, I remember, I had, a I had a class, and then my teacher asked us this question, what is one of your pet peeves? And I wrote right on there, I hate when my mom makes me take a nap. I hated naps. In fact, I used to lay there while I was supposed to be napping, thinking of ways to get back at my mom. Like, should I wet the bed? Will that show her? I hated naps. But I got into college, and guess what happened? One of those days, I uh, was tired, and I fell asleep in the middle of the day. And I realized something. 
That felt nice. That felt nice. I should do that again tomorrow. And I did. And then the next several days. And then I was hooked. And now I love naps. And sometimes the only thing getting me out of bed in the morning is, the, is a nap, right? The prospect of a nap. So love naps. Here's another thing. I, I told you I'm not a hot weather fan. This is sort of the time of year where I just sort of put my head down and plow through. I don't like hot weather. I don't like being hot or sticky or humid. Some of you guys love it. You want to sit on the sun. I don't. I don't want to be near it. But um, I discovered something. We had, you know, fans and window air conditioners growing up. But in Michigan, we, we moved into this apartment. And the summer right before we moved, moved into this apartment, we had the hottest summer I've ever experienced. It was 2012, and the, and the temperatures for several days were well above 100. And we didn't have a great air conditioning system. But the next year, we moved into this apartment that had something called central air. Wow. Central air changed my life. I think I was reborn. Um, it was cool all the time inside the house. It was cool in our bedroom. It was cool in the living room. I went in the bathroom. It was cool in the bathroom. I loved central air. And I said, Janine, we can, we can never move. We can never move. I'm hooked. I, I can't do without this any longer. Sadly, we moved. And uh, now we don't have central air anymore, but uh, central air <laughs> is one of the best things ever. Here's another one. This, is, well, this one's a little very, very specific and probably strange to most of you, but... Uh, I liked golf growing up. I liked playing golf. But somewhere, again, I don't really remember where, I started to watch golf. And probably to a lot of you, that sounds like the most boring, ridiculous thing anyone could do. But I started watching golf realizing this is fun. It's quiet. It's calm. But it's also exciting. Also the qualities I was looking for in a wife. So I started, <laughs> and I found her. I found that wife. But I started watching golf realizing, wow, this is a lot of fun. You know, it's therapeutic, and I love watching golf. And the great thing about golf is you can take a nap during golf, and you don't miss that much. <laughs> so watching golf was another thing. Here's another thing that's kind of serious and silly. When I was younger, I was a ring bearer in a wedding. I was like five years old or something like that. And I remember on the way back from the wedding, I told my mom and dad, I made this like big announcement. I said, I am never getting married. Never. I can't believe people do this. I'm never getting married. Just mark it down, Mom. It's never going to happen. Uh, I hated marriage. I hated girls. I couldn't think about it. But um, although I, I, I got to 29 without being married, I eventually did get married, of course. And marriage is probably the best thing I've ever experienced this side of heaven. Uh, especially as a pastor, you have to have a wife. If I didn't have my wife, I don't think I could make it. So marriage is one of the best, sweetest things you can experience on the earth. And here's a couple deeper things. Uh, growing up in a, as a Christian, as a born-again Christian, which I believe I was, uh, I didn't value God's word. God's word to me seemed like homework. It seemed like a chore. So when I was experiencing God's word, it, was, it felt like a vitamin. It felt like I was just something I was choking down. I just had to get through it and read a few verses, make God happy, and get on with my day. But when I started ministry, God's word became so enriching and nourishing to my soul. And, but when I sat before God's word, it was like brand new to me. It just opened up my soul, opened up my mind and my heart. And really, it just, I don't, it just captured me. God's word just captured me. And I don't know if you've had that experience with God's word, but God's word is valuable. It is not a chore. It is not homework. It is nourishment. And as my dad mentioned, we're going to have a bread of life luncheon. And I actually, I'm the one that came up with that because I'm going to speak from John chapter 6 on that Sunday that talks about the bread of life. And we're going to follow that with an illustration of eating a lot of bread. And so that illustration will stick with us. But God's word is very nourishing to our soul. And here's the one I want to sort of end on today is the Holy Spirit. 
See, my experience with the Holy Spirit growing up is that the Holy Spirit was sort of for those other version of Christians, right? The kooks. The ones that weren't really tethered and grounded to God's word. They're the ones that really had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I sort of distanced myself with those types of people. But as I entered into ministry, I realized, as, even as TGD read John 15, that I was incapable of doing what God had called me to do without God's help. And the Holy Spirit is that help. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to find it from John chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me there. I'm going to read verses 12 to 31. And I want you to listen to what Jesus says. It's very profound. He says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and man manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, uh, troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now that I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. That's our text today. May the Lord bless the teaching of his word. I want us to consider today, before we start, what we would believe to be the most profound thing that could ever happen to someone in this life. What do you think that would be? If someone asked you that question, what is the most profound thing that could ever happen to someone in this life. If you have to make a list, what would those things be? Would it be get married? I can tell you, as, as a person who has been married, it is profound. It changes everything for the good. Getting married is one of the most profound things I've ever experienced. So would marriage be the most profound thing we can experience? What about having children? A lot of you remember what that was like, right? Having children is profound. It changes everything. Your life from the start of children till the end is, is different from that point on. It's incredibly profound. When you and your spouse have a child together, there's nothing like it. It might be even more profound than being married. So is that the most profound thing that can happen to us in this life? Maybe the world would say winning the lottery. 
going from rags to riches in a moment, is the most profound thing that can happen to you in this life. Maybe cheat death, maybe either from a disease or just people who are thrill seekers and like to cheat death. Is that the most profound thing we can experience? Maybe getting your dream job. Maybe to do what you love and to get paid for doing it is the most profound thing that can happen. I could say that I have my dream job. I get to do what I love and I get a salary for it. So that is incredibly profound. But maybe the world would say become famous. Maybe becoming famous, getting recognized, getting discovered for something that you do well is the most profound thing. Here, here as Christians, we would probably say something deeper than those things, right? Would we say get saved? Is getting saved the most profound thing that can happen to us? It might be, right? Think about the time that you were saved. Think about the moment that you turned to Christ. Wasn't everything different? Wasn't everything brand new when you left your sins and you turned to Jesus? That was incredibly profound. Maybe, just maybe, there's one beyond that, though. Knowing God. Is knowing God the most profound thing we can ever experience? Not to just have a relationship with God, but actually to intimately know him. Can anything top that? Can anything top knowing God? Well, according to this text, there might be one. There might be one step even beyond that. And it's having God within us. Think about that for a moment. Having the God who created and spoke the world into existence to reside within you. Have you ever just looked at the stars, looked at the sky and awed? Awed at the fact that you are a part of the creation that God created, that God spoke everything into existence that we see every single day. It's amazing, isn't it? It's awesome. And yet, as we're going to find today, that God desires to reside within our soul. That, maybe, might be the most profound thing we can ever experience in this side of heaven. We have three goals today. Our three goals are this, as we look into the text. Number one goal, to discover and believe that the most profound thing that could ever happen to us in this life is that the Lord Jesus would make his home and dwell within us through his Holy Spirit. And I want us to be amazed by that today. I want that to amaze us. If it hasn't yet, I want us to be amazed by the fact that the Lord would reside within us. If you know who you are by nature, that should amaze you. And I want it to amaze us today. So that's goal number one, is to discover, to believe that, and then to be amazed by that. Number two, to see that Christ's commandments are not only our duty as Christians, are not only unavoidable as Christians, but they are the very reason we were granted this Holy Spirit, and they're the very way that we love our Lord. Jesus. And as I mentioned before, that to love the Lord Jesus is not a chore. It's not homework. It's not a burden. It's not duty. It is a thrill to obey our Lord. Hopefully that is goal number two. Goal number three is to be encouraged, to be comforted, to be emboldened, to live the Christian life better than we have up to this point because of the fact that the Holy Spirit resides within us. To be emboldened by that, to be encouraged, to be given confidence to step outside these walls and to live the Christian life better than we have up to this point, to strive to do the will of the Lord based on the fact that he resides within us. And we're going to find all of these things from the text, if we have time. And we're going to start, the, we're going to start this study today on the Holy Spirit, and maybe that has a few of us nervous. If I was sitting there a few years ago and someone desired to speak about the Holy Spirit, I would have been a little nervous. And I think the reason I would have been a little nervous is because there are denominations, sadly, out there that pervert the understanding of the Holy Spirit. They do. 
And that is out there. They use the Holy Spirit for their own selfish purposes. And so for a while in my life, it seemed like talking about the Holy Spirit was a little bit dangerous. It could lead to a mysterious and intangible Christianity, maybe resulting in a spirituality that isn't anchored in truth, that isn't anchored in God's word. Maybe it's a little bit fluff. I at least had those thoughts in the past, but I was wrong. I was wrong. The Holy Spirit is not dangerous. It's incredibly helpful. And we're going to find that out today. We have to clear our minds first. If we have those thoughts about the Holy Spirit, we need to remove those, mind, those thoughts from our mind before we look into the Holy Spirit. So I want to look at several things that I believe could be things we would think about the Holy Spirit and that some people do think about the Holy Spirit, but really we find no biblical support for it whatsoever. Okay? So just work through this list with me of things that the Holy Spirit could be said about, but really we find no biblical support for it. The number one thing is that the Holy Spirit is not a thing. It's not a tool. It's not like God's grace, which is a tool. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's a part of the triune God. The Holy Spirit is not just a power, but an empowerer. He's a person. He's part of the Godhead. And that's really important to know. There's one God, but there's three persons. There's three roles. And that role of the Holy Spirit is incredible for us. So it's not a thing. It's not a tool. It is a person who God sends to reside within us, to empower us. So that's number one. Number two, the Holy Spirit is not or does not work independently of Scripture. He does not work independently of God's recorded will. The Holy Spirit does not have his own agenda. He does not do whatever he wants. He does exactly as God has told him to do by declaring and reminding and enhancing the word of God. That's what he does. So the Holy Spirit does not move about on his own and do his own thing. He does exactly what God has told us to do. Number three, the Holy Spirit is not working within the mysterious or vague, like many people think. But he is perfectly working according to the revealed scriptures that we have before us and God's commandments. His goal is clear, and it's never deviated from. He is here to enhance, to reveal to enlighten us on the word of God. That's why the Holy Spirit is given to us. The Holy Spirit also does not bring chaos. He does not bring disorder. It's on the contrary. He brings perfect, godly order. He comes to bring and make our lives as straight as an arrow. So I would even say this, that the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, is perfect, godly order. Because the Holy Spirit does not bring chaos. He does not bring disorder. If there's disorder and chaos, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit is not there because the Holy Spirit brings order. He also is not just for the leaders or the mature in the faith. The Holy Spirit is for everyone who desires to follow Christ, from young child to adult, from new in the faith to been in it for a long time. The Holy Spirit is an equal opportunity helper for anyone who desires to please God. He is. The Holy Spirit is not our Savior. The Holy Spirit is not our God. He is the power and the strength that we need to serve our Lord. He wants the glory of the Father, and he wants the magnification of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what he's come to do, those two things. And lastly, the Holy Spirit is not out for his own glory. He is out for the glory of the Lord. The Holy Spirit knows whom he serves and he's here to help us do the very, very same thing. I hope that clears up a little bit of what the Holy Spirit is not. 
We're going to learn about the Holy Spirit today, what he is, how profound he is. And I mentioned our goals today are this. Believing that the Holy Spirit is the most profound thing that we can have and can experience. To appreciate the commandments and that we love Jesus through obedience to his commandments. And then number three, to be emboldened to live the Christian life based on those facts. And I want to direct your attention to the text. We're going to find all of these things from the text. What is the best way to find these goals, to come to these goals? It's to find them in the word of God. So I simply... I want you to walk through this text with me because there is a lot there. And if we don't get to everything, then we don't. But I'm going to try my very best to unlock what the Lord is saying to us. And we're going to start right here at verses 12 to 14. Listen again to what he says. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Are those bold promises? Aren't those bold promises? Whoever believes in me will do greater works than I have done. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you see how bold those promises are that the Lord is giving to us? You see, Jesus left this earth around 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, and it might look to the outsiders that Christianity stopped right there. Jesus died. Some people said he resurrected. We know that he did. After that, he ascended back to heaven, and it looked like Jesus was just gone. That Christianity maybe stopped there. Maybe that Jesus' presence was no longer on this earth, but we know that's not true because he left his Holy Spirit upon this earth so that we might not only continue the work of Christ, but think about this fact. We actually might do it more powerfully than he did. How does it make any sense? How does it make any sense that when the Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven, his followers were going to do greater works than he? Well, it might be through multiplication, because when the Lord sent his Holy Spirit, he sent it to dozens, to hundreds, to thousands, which now I would say probably tens of thousands of little Christs are all over this planet, empowered and dwelt by and filled by the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Jesus may have been saying? When I go back to heaven, I'm going to send the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, there's going to be lots of you. There's going to be lots of little Christ. In fact, the word Christianity, or excuse me, Christian, means little Christ. And how many little Christs are upon this planet? I don't know. Tens of thousands, I would say, at least. And he also proved this scripturally. Remember when Jesus was upon the earth and a woman came up behind him and she touched the fringe of his garment? And as soon as she did that, her illness left her. Do you remember that story? Isn't that a wild story? And here Jesus says, you're going to do greater works than that. A woman came up and touched the fringe of his garment, and the illness left her. Well, if you fast forward to the book of Acts, the disciples, Peter and others, were walking by people, and their shadow was passing by sick people and healing them. I would say that's probably a greater work than Jesus, because the fringe of his garment versus your shadow healed people. And there's an evidence the fact that he has multiplied his followers and the fact that he sent his divine power to his people to do amazing works. I don't necessarily think we all have that kind of power that the apostles had, but we do have God's power. And so what he's basically saying to the disciples is, listen, when I was here, you didn't need the Holy Spirit. You had me. I was next to you. I was guiding you. I was showing you the way. But now that I'm ascending back to the Father, you're going to need the helper. And I'm going to send the helper. And when I send a helper, you're going to do divine things upon this world. And that helper is going to help you surpass the works of Christ 
that I have done up to this point. Or maybe, maybe the better way to put it is to multiply them here on the earth. I don't really like when people say that Christianity is not a religion of works. Because it is. Because there's no other kind. Christianity is a religion of works. You can see it right there in the text. We are here to surpass the works of Christ upon this earth. We're going to find out later that we are here to obey the commandments of Christ. So we are a religion of works. What we are not is we don't hold to a justification of works. That needs to be clarified. We do not hold to a salvation of works. We are here to do the works of Christ, but we do not find favor with God by doing good works, do we? We find favor with God by faith in Jesus. And that is a clarification that we need to, we need to show you today. Is something wrong with the slides? Just checking. Okay. No, we're, <laughs> we're all lined up. I thought someone sent me a note up here. Anyways, the Holy Spirit was sent to the disciples so that they could do Christ's work and continue his work upon this planet. Because it was going to continue. It was always supposed to continue. And Christianity is a religion of works. We are here to continue what Christ started. And we're going to learn again that we are here to do exactly as he taught us to do. So we need to remove that from our minds that we're not a religion of works. We are a religion of works. What we're not is earning favor with God through our works. We find that simply through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ also knew that the disciples were going to need to communicate with him. So he gave them such access to himself through prayer. We know what that's like. When friends depart one another, they share contact information. Here's my updated email. Here's my phone number. I want to stay in touch. So here's how you contact me. That's basically what Jesus was doing. He was saying to his disciples, when I leave, not only are you going to have the Holy Spirit, you're going to have 24-7 access to me through prayer. And anytime you need me, day or night, hard or easy, lonely or not, call upon me, and I will answer. I will be there. You could talk to me any moment of the day, and I want to encourage you that way, to speak to the Lord. Speak to him often. Take every request, take every need, take every thought before the Lord, because you can. And he gave us this promise that when our desire lines up with his, we get a blank check to get whatever we need to accomplish his will. And to me, that's a really amazing promise that Christ says, listen, if you're here to do my will, to continue my works, ask anything, and I will give it to you, because I want it more than you want it. And I want you to have access to me, and I want you to have the promise that I will answer your needs. And if you remember, how did Jesus teach us how to pray? When Jesus taught us how to pray, do you remember the first thing he taught us? He says, when you pray, say this, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the first thing Jesus taught us to pray for, that God's name would be hallowed, that God's name would be revered, that God's name would be glorified upon this earth. Is that what we pray for? Is that the number one thing at the top of our prayer list? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. If you don't get to any of these requests, make sure that one is covered, that your name would be glorified upon this earth. And so Jesus is saying, listen, every request should be about God's glory. Every request. Because that's what we're here for. That is why we've been given prayer in the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also said this, listen, when you pray, come in my name. I don't know if anyone's ever said to you, if you go into a store or a restaurant that they work at, mention my name and you'll get a discount. Go here and mention my name, and they'll give you 10% off or whatever. Jesus is saying, if you go to God, mention my name, and you're going to get everything you want. Everything you need 
to accomplish the work that he's called you to do. Come in my name and you will get it. And that's something that we can take to the bank. Next he says in verse 15 to 17, he says, listen to this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Christ wanted us clear that if we say that we love him, then we will strive to do exactly as he taught us to do, according to his specific and written commandments. Do we truly love our Lord? Because that's what he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not just keep my commandments, but if you love me, if you desire to please me, if you have been touched by my grace and my gospel, keep my commandments. We have to be compelled beyond just duty in the Christian life. We have to find our motivation to love the Lord. That has to be the engine of our heart. Not just duty, not just fear, not just obedience, but I desire to love my Lord. And I hope that you do. But he says, listen, if you want to love me, do what I taught you to do. Do what I told you to do. Look at my commandments and obey them. And I've used this illustration before, I think, but I'm going to use it again Here's an illustration of maybe what Jesus is saying. In this illustration, imagine yourself as a young child, if you're not yet, uh, not anymore, but picture yourself as a young child, and your mom gives you a very specific and clear command to clean your filthy room because it's a disaster area. And she says, listen, I'm going to go to the store, and when I come back, I want your room cleaned. I want it spotless. That is the one thing I want you to do today. So she goes to the store, she gets the groceries, and you don't really want to clean your room. It is a disaster area. It is messy. It is going to take a long time. But you do want to love your mom, so you sit down and you decide to write her this love note. Tell her how nice she is, how pretty she is, how much you love her meatloaf. And you prop up this nice little letter on the kitchen table so that when she drops off the bags from groceries, she sees the note, she picks it up, she's all touched and impacted by that note. So your mom comes home, she drops off the grocery bags, and she picks up the note and she reads it. And she's touched because of all the great things that you said about her. But then what happens? She walks down to your bedroom and she notices that it's completely disregarded, completely untouched. Now I have a question for you. Those things that you just wrote in the note to your mom, do you think those have any weight? Do you think they do? I don't think they do. Because if she gave you a clear and specific commandment to, to clean up your bedroom and you disregarded it, and basically what Jesus is saying today, if you love me, do exactly what I taught you to do. Exactly. Learn them and then obey them. Because as Jesus has mentioned, obedience is better than sacrifice. It's better. It's what he wants. Christ knows best what pleases him. And if the disciples wanted to love the Lord after he departed, and they did, he told them that the way to do it was through the attending of the exact commandments that he taught them. If you remember our last lesson, we talked about the woman who came and wanted to worship the Lord, and she brought this alabaster flask of ointment, and she kissed his feet repeatedly. I would say this, according to what I'm learning in this text, obedience is the alabaster flask of ointment. It is the kissing the feet of Jesus. If you want to worship the Lord, learn his commandments and put them into practice. And that will be an equivalent of what that woman was doing for him that day. 
Because that is the love gift that our Lord Jesus wants from us. I was just talking to someone the other day about these things called love languages. You guys ever heard of those? That there's these love languages, I guess, that people like to be loved a certain way. Some people like gifts and other people like, you know, to be praised and things like that. Well, I don't know if the Lord Jesus has a love language, but he definitely has a way that he wants to be loved. And that way is through obedience. Obedience to his commandments. And so if that is our sole desire, he wants us to know that the Holy Spirit will be given to us to accomplish those commandments because we can and we must obey the Lord. And obedience, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest, it's difficult. It's a difficult task. Even if you want to do it, obedience to Christ can be hard. And we need divine help in order to accomplish that. And look at what he's saying. You got it. You got it. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. And then I'm not going to just abandon you. On the contrary, I'm going to give you the divine power in order to do it. So you know what to do and then you're capable of doing it. Aren't you glad that the Lord did that? Aren't you glad that he didn't just say, here, do these really hard things and get them done and uh, do it on your own strength? No, he didn't. Do it in the strength that I will provide. In fact, I think he's saying here, the Holy Spirit is only given to those who desire to serve God properly. And that the world knows nothing of this divine helper and doesn't even know what they're missing out on. If we were to speak of the word, to, to the world about the ministries of the Holy Spirit, they would look at us like we had three heads. What are you talking about? What is this thing that you're referring to? Because the world cannot receive such lofty matters into their heart and mind. They know nothing about the Holy Spirit. But you and I not only know it about it, we rely upon that Spirit every single day. Christianity is not about just going to heaven. It's about serving God on this earth. And we need the Holy Spirit in order to do that. See, the, the Spirit of God is a special gift of love from our Heavenly Father to his children. I would even say beyond the Lord Jesus himself, the most special gift he's ever given us is his Holy Spirit. Because it's the key to accomplishing everything that he asked of us. And we who are in Christ, we not only know the helper, we rely on him every single day because he resides within us. And he's the sole reason that we can accomplish anything godly upon this earth. So the Holy Spirit would also be the source of comfort that the disciples were going to lose. Because you have to imagine being around Jesus for three years and then finding out that he's going to send back to heaven must have been a little terrifying. <laughs> going, oh, Jesus, yeah, you really can't leave. We've gotten quite used to having you around. What about all the comfort and the peace and the security you provide? We're going to lose all of that when you go back to heaven? Jesus says, no, you're not going to lose it. You're going to gain it. You're going to gain more comfort. You're going to gain more peace. You're going to gain more courage in the soul. I'm going to be more near you than I've ever been before because you know what it's like to have me next to you. From now on, I will be inside of you. And all that comfort, all that peace, all that security that I provide will be there constantly. Amen to that? And unlike the Lord Jesus who ascended back to heaven and sometimes just wasn't around the disciples every aspect of the day, the Spirit would never leave the disciples neither for a moment or indefinitely. Christ would always be with them from that moment on. And so everything you and I go through, everything, Christ is there. Christ is with us. Christ is in us. Christ is helping us. It's kind of like marriage, actually. Because when you're married, you always have someone in your corner. If you go through highs, they're there. If you go through lows, they're there. And Jesus is there in the highs, he's in the mountaintops, and he's also in the valleys of life, thanks to his Holy Spirit. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now speaking directly to his disciples, Christ desired to encourage them and prepare them for his departure from the earth. He wanted them to know that he was not going to abandon them. On the contrary, he was going to come to them more profoundly than he did up to that point. He was going to leave and come at the very same time. I'm going to ascend in bodily fashion, but I'm going to come more near to you than you've ever experienced before. The Heavenly Father himself will father you the most profoundly than he's ever had before through the Holy Spirit because he will guide you every step of the journey. And that's a great thing to know that our Father is always near. He's always with us. He's always watching out for us. We never have to say, God, where are you? God, I need you. He's there. He knows it. We can call upon him. Jesus says the world's not going to see Jesus. He's going to be gone in the flesh. And it would seem to the world as if Jesus and Christianity was done. Because he's gone. Jesus is not there. He was not with his disciples. That should have been the end of Christianity. Was it the end of Christianity? Not at all. In fact, Christianity spread and increased and gained momentum. Why? Because his disciples and followers had Jesus within their souls. And Christianity gained force, gained momentum, gained followers. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, it's still increasing because of the Holy Spirit residing within his people. And I would say that the very life within our soul, if you have life within your soul, spiritual life, it is proof of the Lord's presence on this earth. Because how else would you have that life if the Holy Spirit wasn't with us? When we do experience the presence of Christ via the Holy Spirit, we do understand how profound our relationship is with God. In other words, Christ helps us so much, and we know that without his help, we would be ruined. I know that. I could say that confidently. If Christ stops helping me today, I'm undone. I'm ruined. I can't continue this job here. I can't continue my ministry. I can't continue serving God the way that he wants. If he ceases to give me his help, my ministry stops as well. And if you know how profound the Holy Spirit is, you know that as well. The Holy Spirit is our validation of our relationship to God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you also don't have a relationship with God because he grants it to every single follower who loves him. But when we're in Christ by faith, he is in us as well. Think about that. We're in Christ, and he's in us. Think of the intimacy. Think of the intimacy we have with our Lord. In fact, I would say sexual union in a marriage is a reflection of that. That's the intimacy we have with the Lord. He's in us, and we're in him. And that's a great thing to know. But the world knows nothing of this intimacy. But thanks to God, we, because of the Holy Spirit, can have this profound intimacy with our Lord. And I'm thankful for that. That I don't just know facts about Jesus. I didn't just read his Wikipedia. I don't just know some things about him. I experience his presence on a daily basis. And I really hope you do as well. Verse 21, he's going to keep reiterating what he said. Listen to what he says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will come, excuse me, I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And here we find once again that the Lord knows exactly the best way to love him. We don't have to create our own way of service. We don't have to each uniquely come up with a gift to give to Jesus. We all do and learn the same things. That is his commandments. He wants specific and faithful obedience to what he has commanded us to. Because remember, to Jesus, obedience is better than sacrifice. Cleaning your room is better than writing him a love note. And sometimes I think we get off that course and we think, I need to give God some grand gesture. I've been away from him for a while, so maybe I do need to do some kind of missions trip or go door to door or do something to get in favor with God again. I need to give God something special. And you know what God would say to us if we want to do something like that? Begin obeying me. Begin a faithful process of going the way I taught you to go. In fact, our obedience to his commandments is this profound for us. It's validation that we actually love Jesus. Do you know how many people in this world say they love Jesus? Only those who obey him are the ones who actually do. No obedience equates no love that God will accept. Do you remember Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel, both, both brothers gave God something. They gave him a sacrifice. Abel gave him his first fruits, and Cain gave him whatever he wanted to give him. Cain's was rejected. Abel's was accepted because Abel learned what he wanted, and Cain didn't care. Cain gave him whatever Cain wanted to give him. God rejected Cain's sacrifice. Cain got angry from that, and he killed his brother. So we must not only know the commandments, which is really important, but we must keep them as well. Knowing them without keeping them is useless to God. And if we desire to keep them, we have a promise from him that the Holy Spirit will come and help us to do that. And several times here in this pulpit, I've tried to share with you about these commandments. There's a little bit of confusion about them today, but I want to, if I can, bring up a screen here. Yeah, we'll see if this works. It might not. But I'm going to bring up a screen here that I've brought up before, but I, I simply hope to clarify with you what these commandments are that Jesus is talking about. I don't know if you can read my handwriting there. But this is a little illustration. If you find in the Word of God there are two primary commandments, two overarching commandments. That's, that's supposed to be an arch. And the two overarching commandments are love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so it, there are two commandments in Scripture that you need to pay attention to. But we know in Scripture there are much more than two commandments, aren't there? You find them in the Old Testament, you find them in the New Testament. And how do you figure out which commandments Jesus is talking about? Well, he's talking about the two. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. But the Ten Commandments are a further explanation of how you do that. So you could look at the Ten Commandments and you could still find love the Lord and love your neighbor. If you want even further explanation of the Ten Commandments, you can go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, where Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he unravels them for us and says, Here, you thought that it was just about not killing your neighbor? It's actually about not hating them also. You heard that it was just about not committing adultery? It's actually not about lusting after someone who's not your spouse as well. So Jesus came to unravel the commandments so we could know them even greater, but they're still about love. They fall under the ten, which fall under the two. Love the Lord 
and love your neighbor. And then there's commandments all over the New Testament, written by all the New Testament writers. Are they different? Are they their own versions of commandments? Are they making up commandments as they go? No. What they're further doing is unraveling the teachings of Jesus. So if you really want to know the commandments of Jesus, get into the word of God and learn them. But always remember, they fall under love the Lord and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that clarifies. For me, that makes it simple because I'm never strained from those two commandments. And I should see every commandment through loving the Lord and loving my neighbor. Um, so I hope that illustration at least helps you a little bit. We're going to go back to the slides here. Um, if we can get back there. It's always a couple extra steps, but we will get back there. So that's a little bit of help for understanding what commandments that he's talking about. Are we striving to obey those commandments? I mean, seriously, are we striving to obey them? If you would take your Bibles quickly and go to Matthew chapter 7, I want to show you one thing that the Lord Jesus said about obedience. Matthew chapter 7, I know you've heard this passage before, but take your eyes and look at verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus was the master of illustrations. Listen to what he says. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Do you know the only variance between the two things? Both people know the commandments, but only one of them obeys. The one who obeys, Jesus says, is the one who has built his house upon the rock. The one who hears only and doesn't obey is the one who builds his house upon the sand. And which house lasts? Which house weathers the storm? The one on the rock or the one on the sand? I'm asking Sunday school questions here today. The one on the rock. The one who hears the words of the Lord and does them is the one who builds his house upon the rock. Judas, as he's listening to this, the other Judas, not the bad Judas, poses a question to Jesus whether Jesus will come to everyone, will the Holy Spirit come to everyone, or specifically only those who follow you, Jesus. And Jesus reiterates that the Holy Spirit is only for those who desire to keep the words of Jesus because God does not waste anything. He is not going to give the Holy Spirit in vain. If someone does not want to please God, they are not going to get the Holy Spirit because it would be wasted. So we have to check our souls today. Do we desire to obey the Lord? If we desire to obey the Lord, the Holy Spirit is ours. We have him. He is there whenever we need him. But if we don't, or if we want to use the Holy Spirit for our own purposes, maybe like the sorcerer in Acts who wanted the Holy Spirit to get rich with or to get famous by. He wanted the Holy Spirit, but he wanted to use it for his own practice. He didn't get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't for people like that, and it's only for people who want to follow the Lord. If we do desire to do the will of God, and I hope that each of us does, and we could keep the commandments of Christ, then Jesus wants us to know that, listen to this, He's going to come and make us home with us. See, the disciples thought Jesus was going to leave. He wasn't going to leave. It was the opposite. He was going to move in with them. I'm not leaving. I'm leaving only in bodily form. What I'm actually going to do is I'm going to turn around and come inside of you. I'm going to move in with you. 
I'm going to be there every step of the way. I will be within your soul. You will have my power. You will have my presence. You will have my comfort. You will have my courage. You will have my guidance, and you'll have it every step of the journey. And to me, that's really, really amazing to know that we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to be intimidated by the enemies. Why? Because God fights for us from within us. And I'm so thankful for that. But as a broken record, Jesus says here once again, the way to test our professed love for Christ is by our attending to his commandments. If we say that we love Jesus without seeking his will and striving to accomplish it in our lives, it's impossible. It's not a working equation. He would say to us, you don't love me then if you don't obey me. You don't obey me. You don't strive to obey me. You don't strive to know my commandments and put them into practice. Then you don't love me either. And if you do love me, then it's evidenced by the fact that you obey me. Because these commandments did not originate with Jesus. They didn't start when Jesus came upon the earth, did they? They were already here. The commandments preceded the coming of Jesus. They are eternal. They are ancient. The Ten Commandments are never changing. They are exactly what God still desires to, for us. So when Jesus came, he simply stamped the commandments once again and said, these are my commandments as well. I stamp them. These are my commandments. They are God's commandments. Do them. They are exactly what we are looking for. So any way you slice it, the commandments are our duty as Christians. And again, if we refuse, if we neglect, if we forget, if we avoid to obey, if we practically just don't obey them, we reject our Lord. It's that simple. But it's that scary. Think about it. If we don't obey his commandments, he would say, you don't believe, you don't love, you reject because the commandments are exactly what I want from you. So we can go as far today to say that our very salvation was given for the purpose of obedience to God. We can't just call Jesus Lord and not do what he commands us to do. I think I've told you this story as well, but when I was younger, I tried to become friends with a cool kid in seventh grade or something like that. There was this cool kid that I wanted to be friends with, and I knew that I was going to have to do something special or be something special in order to be friends with this cool kid. So one day he came up to me and said, hey, Todd, what kind of bands are you into? What kind of music do you like, Todd? And I was like, oh, no, I can't say Steve Green. So I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the name of a band that I've heard, and hopefully it'll just land. So I said to the kid, you know what, who I'm a big fan of? I like the band Airsmith. <laughs> big fan, big fan of Airsmith. He goes, do you mean Aerosmith? I was like, yeah, that's what I said, Aerosmith. He goes, really, really, you're a fan of Aerosmith? He goes, yeah, what's your favorite song, Todd? I was like, oh, no. I couldn't come up with any. And do you know what Eric realized at that moment? I was a fraud. I didn't even know, I didn't even know how to say Aerosmith properly. I didn't know any of their songs. I wasn't a fan of Aerosmith. I just wanted to be friends with the cool kid. Do you want to just be friends with Jesus, or do you actually want to please him? If you want to please him, you've got to get to know him. And the way to get to know him is to get to know what he likes and what he doesn't like. Don't you have to do that in every single relationship? If you really want to know me, or if I want to know my wife, or if you want to know someone close to you, <clears throat> get to know what they like. Get to know what they love. Get to know what they do with their time. And Jesus says the very same thing. Look at verse 25. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
And I love this verse here. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus did everything he could to train and teach his disciples the proper way to go before he left this earth. And then he died. And then he resurrected. And then he ascended back to heaven. But he wanted the disciples to know that his departure from the earth would not halt the teaching and the training that they needed. The Spirit was going to actively and purposefully continue to remind them of what Jesus said over and over and over. And here's another test to know if you actually have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will remind you of what Jesus already said. That's his purpose. To remind, to help you remember, to bring to remembrance what Jesus has already laid before you. So if the Spirit of God is telling you to do anything other than obey the commandments of Jesus, it's most likely not the Holy Spirit speaking to you, but possibly a false spirit speaking to you. Because only a false spirit would say, hey, let's try this new stuff. Let's try this different stuff. I have something different for you. Because the Holy Spirit, he reminds and he reiterates and he stamps what Jesus has already said. Because our job as Christians are to continue the works of Jesus. And not only will the Lord leave his Holy Spirit for us, he will also leave us his peace. And the Lord's peace is not like the peace the world knows. This peace is otherworldly. The world's peace, it comes and it goes. It's based on circumstances. It's like a roller coaster. I have peace today. I don't have peace today because of life. But the peace of God is the calm in the midst of storms, isn't it? The peace of God is the courage to face our fiercest enemies. I thought of Caleb and Joseph. You remember when the 10, the 12 spies went to spy out the land? And the 10 spies saw the giants and said, oh, that's too big. We're not going into that land. And Caleb and Joseph saw the Lord instead of the, instead of the enemies. They said, the enemies are big, but our Lord is bigger. We can take the land. What do you see? Do you see the enemy? Or do you see the Lord that makes the enemy look puny? The Spirit is that peace. And the Lord tells us not to be fearful, not to be troubled, because he's so near us. Whatever we face, he's with us. Whatever enemy, he is bigger. Whatever storm, he's in control of it. Whatever pain, whatever discomfort, whatever shadow that comes upon us, the Lord has been there first, and he knows how to weather it. Amen? Lord, Spirit of Jesus within us, and that spirit, when it's within us, we cannot fail. We cannot fail if we rely upon the power of God. Let's look at the last verses quickly. Verse 28, he said, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. Jesus wants us to believe what he said. It's that simple. He wants us to have the proper perspective on things. Jesus leaving this earth was probably disheartening for the disciples to hear. But if they believed what Jesus said, it should actually not be disheartening. It should cause them to rejoice. Because Jesus would come even more near than he was at that point. And the Holy Spirit's help was going to be more profound than Jesus' help had been to them by that point. His nearness to them was actually going to increase. 
And Jesus going back to the Father was going to be another cause of rejoicing because Jesus could finally leave the sin-stained, sin-cursed world. I was talking to someone the other day that said they can start uh, working at their job that they have now, but they can do it 100% remote. You guys know what that means? Which means they're not in the office, but they're doing their job. Jesus left this earth. He could stop being blasphemed, at least to his face. Stop being rejected, stop being whipped, stop being crucified. And he could ascend back to his Father. In perfect union, in perfect fellowship once again. And he said, rejoice, disciples, rejoice, because I'm going to the Father and I'm going to be more near to you than you've ever known before. Don't we want Jesus happy? Don't we want him happy? Don't we want our Lord Jesus with his Father? He warned the disciples that the devil was coming. The devil was coming to destroy the work of Christ. But listen to what he says. He has no claim on me. He has no claim on me. He has no claim on my works. He has no claim on the plan of God. And everything is going to happen just as God designed it to happen. And Jesus obeyed God as we are commanded to obey him. Jesus was the perfect example of what it looks like when we submit ourselves to the will of God. And the world will forever know that Jesus loves God and God's will more than anything. Because that is his legacy. What do we do with this? I hope we arrived at our three goals. Our application today is very simple. Number one, to recognize how profound it is to receive the Holy Spirit. If that is something that you desire and that is something you do not have yet, there is only one way to receive this Holy Spirit. is through faith in Christ. If you desire to please God and obey God and have this Holy Spirit within you, you have to turn to Christ. It is the only way you will receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's effect upon your soul is going to be the most profound thing you've ever experienced. If you think you may not have this found, found this profound divine helper and he's not within you today, then I want you to explore the possibility that you haven't turned to Christ either. I really do. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you don't know what that power is like, I want you to consider that maybe you yet haven't turned to Christ by faith. Because the Holy Spirit is given for all those who desire to please Jesus. If you have this helper, nothing is impossible for you. Nothing. And I don't want you to live with defeatism, if that's true. If you have the Holy Spirit, live courageously for Jesus. Because you have God within you. You have God within you. And what enemy can defeat you if God is within inside of you? No one. Who can? Who can stand up to God? That's application number one. Application number two is do whatever you must to both learn and obey the commandments of Christ. I had what you might call an epiphany the other day. Um, the commandments of God, if you read the New Testament especially, this word comes up so many times. And I think it's one of the greatest deficiencies we have as Christians today. I'm not sure we know the commandments. I'm serious. And I felt like the Lord was saying to me, Todd, teach them. Teach my commandments. Lay my commandments before my people so that they know them. The doing them is up to you. But as a leader, as a pastor, I believe that I need to teach the commandments. So I don't know what that's going to turn into. It might turn into starting some classroom. I'm serious. Classroom discussions, classroom teaching, outside of what we already do on Sunday. It might turn into a podcast series. It might turn into a sermon series here. But I believe the Lord was saying, Todd, teach the commandments. Lay the commandments before my people. Number two, learning from Jesus what pleases him is the most important thing we can do as Christians. In fact, I'm going to say it's the reason we exist. 
And neglecting or disobeying Christ's commandments is equivalent to rejecting him. One more time, neglecting or disobeying Christ's commandments is equivalent to rejecting him because he is our Lord and he is our master. And we should desire to love Jesus the proper way. We should set his will ever before us and strive to obey him in every area of your life. I want to do this in the right tone, but I want you to do something for me today. If you're not obeying Jesus, if you're not striving to obey Jesus, I want you to take your pen and I want you to write on your bulletin this. I want you to write this phrase, I do not love Jesus. And his spirit is not yet within me. And I want you to look at that phrase several times today. And the reason I want you to look at that is not so that it depresses you, so that it might jolt you out of your sin and out of your spiritual death, so that you might actually turn to the Lord for the first time. Because that similar thing was told to me in my mid-20s. Todd, you say that you love me, but you don't obey me. And I'm going to say to you today, you don't love me either because you don't obey me. And if you would truly come to grips with the fact that maybe you're not obeying Christ like you think you are, that you want to, or that you wish that you would, maybe you need to come with grips that maybe you yet haven't seen Christ for what he is, for your Savior, your Lord, your God, because he's all of those. Number three, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you desire to obey Christ, to be encouraged. Be encouraged that Christ desires to live within your soul and help you to do exactly what he expects you to do. And I want you to do this as well. Stand up to the enemy. Stand up to him. Go forward in faith because you don't fight alone. You don't fight the devil one-on-one. You stand next to the almighty God and he knows it. And he can only do one thing. He can only try and convince us that we're alone. Because when we're alone, we fight alone. But when we're with God, we fight with God, and he vanishes, the devil that is. So not only are we not abandoned, God did not abandon us, Jesus did not abandon us, he moved into our soul. And I want you to be encouraged and inspired and emboldened by that today. That's our three goals, those are our three applications. Do you believe that having Jesus within you is the most profound thing that can happen to you in this life? Do you believe that his presence changes everything with how you live the Christian life? Do you? I hope that you do. If so, live this life boldly and faithfully for Jesus. Because he's worthy. He's worthy. And remember what the last thing Jesus said in the text. He said, rise. Let us go from here. And I'm going to say that to all of us today. Let us all rise. Let us go out from here. And let us follow our Lord greater than we have up to this point. For his glory, thanks to his power, and because Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. What else can we say? Thank you. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Father, we need you. Lord, we need you every step of the way. Embolden this church. Empower this church. If there are people here who are still in their sins, turn them away from their sins and turn them to Christ. This time on this earth is brief, and one day we will stand before God. And Father, we want confidence on that day. And we want to look at Jesus and say to him, I love you. And for him to say, I know that you do because you obeyed me. Father, thank you for the text. I hope that we would be inspired and encouraged and emboldened to live the Christian life today. For your sake, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.